Deep and durable and well-known by all of us is the influence and place of money in American politics. If you go to that famous quip by one of the all-time politicos of American history, Mark Hanna, an Ohio Republican, this is what he said. There are two things that are important in politics. The first is money, and I can't remember what the second one is. (laughs) Hanna died in 1904. He did not have super PACs, but we do. And we have a debate. Two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still over-regulated. That is our motion. I'm John Donvan. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. Four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, all of whom have grappled with the question of where money fits into a system that we refer to as democracy. We debate, as always, in three rounds. Then the audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters and welcome first David Keating. And David, earlier this year, you became president of the Center for Competitive Politics. It represented a group that you also founded in a landmark case. That was speechnow.org versus Federal Election Committee. Uh, Citizens United gets most of the credit for the fact that we have super PACs, but without SpeechNow, we would not have them at all. In addition to that involvement, you also spent a lot of time in your career working on tax policy. So the question is, which is the more twisted set of legislation, <laughs> campaign finance or tax policy? Well, that's simple. The, um, the tax laws are a model of clarity and simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> By comparison. Yes, and the IRS is reasonable compared to the Federal Election Commission. <laughs> All right. Thank you, David Keating. Uh, your partner arguing for the motion, two cheers for super PACs, Jacob Sullum. <laughs> Jacob, you are a senior editor at Reason Magazine, where the motto is free minds and free markets. You're also the author of Saying Yes in Defense of Drug Use. Jacob, you graduated from Cornell University, where you majored in both economics and psychology. And the question is, is that what equals a libertarian? Uh, I did learn a lot about uh, politicians in my abnormal psych course. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Our motion is two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. And here, arguing against the motion first, Trevor Potter. (laughs) Trevor, you are president and general counsel of the Campaign Legal Center and a former commissioner and chairman of the Federal Election Commission. But you may also know Trevor as the man behind Stephen Colbert's super PAC, Americans for a Better Tomorrow, Tomorrow. (laughs) You you are an attorney, and you've advised several uh, Republican presidential candidates. So how did you end up on Comedy Central? I answered my phone. (laughs) Easy enough. It could have been a poster. Stephen Colbert called and said, can you explain what a PAC is? I laid it out, explained how to game the system. He said, are you willing to say that in public? All right. I was. Thanks, Trevor Potter. And let's meet your partner, also arguing against super PACs, Jonathan Soros. Jonathan, you are a senior fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and CEO of JS Capital Management. You are also one of the co-founders of Friends of Democracy. And a Washington Post headline about this says it all. Son of liberal financier George Soros launches anti-super PAC super PAC. So how does that work? Well, we're never going to change any of these rules unless we can build some political power to do so. And right now, both political parties are locked into the status quo, and so the only way to do so is from the outside. So working from the inside. All right. So on to round one, opening statements from each of our debaters in turn. 
And speaking first up for the motion, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. David Keating. He is president of the Center for Competitive Politics. Before this, he was executive director of the Club for Growth and president of SpeechNow.org. Ladies and gentlemen, David Keating. I think largely what we have tonight is a debate about, what, about the First Amendment and what it means and whether we still value the First Amendment. Do we want to keep the First Amendment the way it was written or do we want it to say something else? First, let's review what it says. Uh, The part that we're talking about tonight is Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. Well, I'm sorry to inform that we have a lot of laws abridging freedom of speech and regulating speech. The Supreme Court has said there are now 30 different types of regulations on political speech. We have laws and regulations that come to close to 400,000 words. And on top of that, there have been nearly 7,000 enforcement actions by the Federal Election Commission during its history. To really understand the law, you need to understand all that. And the fact is, no one does understand what the election law means. In fact, if you want to speak out about politics and elections, you have to hire a lawyer, like this one over here. I don't know how much he charges, but most grassroots groups probably can't afford it. I lived under this working at a political committee. I saw the regulations firsthand. And there is no group fighting on the political front for the First Amendment. That's why I started SpeechNow.org, because I think we need a group to fight for our political free speech rights. And basically, here's how it works. It's Americans getting together and pooling their money. I talk to you. I make the case as to why you should donate money so then we can talk to other Americans. That's what the SpeechNow model was. There was only one problem with it. It was illegal to do that. So the SpeechNow.org, with the assistance of a couple of public interest law firms, sued the FEC, and to make a long story short, we won. That case, SpeechNow.org versus FEC, is what created the super PAC. The Federal Election Commission calls these groups independent expenditure-only committees, because that's all they can do. We don't make any donations to candidates. We don't make any donations to political parties. We don't coordinate our speech with the candidates. We don't coordinate our speech with the political parties. All of our donors, over $200, are disclosed to the public. That is what the media has come to call a super PAC. So when you think about it, What's wrong with that? It's basically a group of people getting together to saying, hey, we want to speak to our fellow Americans about what direction we think the country should go. Now, this model has been so popular that there are now 805 of them that have formed since June of 2010, when super PACs first became legal. So if you believe in the right of the people to change their government, we have to give people the right to do everything they can to speak to other Americans. And independent political groups are the way to do it. Thank you. Thank you, David Keating. Our motion is two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. And here to debate against the motion, 
Trevor Potter. He is president and general counsel of the Campaign Legal Center and a former commissioner and chairman of the Federal Election Commission. He is also the lawyer behind the creation of Stephen Colbert's PAC, Americans for a Better Tomorrow, Tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, Trevor Potter. Thank you, John. It may surprise our worthy opponents, but all of us on the stage tonight recognize and celebrate the importance of the First Amendment. But our opponents want this to begin and end as a debate about the First Amendment and only about their view of the First Amendment. They want to ignore the rest of the Constitution and the functioning of the government that we, the people, created. What we have learned over the last 200 years, by sad experience, is that our government can be corrupted by campaign money. Theodore Roosevelt began this national discussion in 1905, after being elected president with huge contributions from Wall Street. He actually had Mark Hanna, and Mark Hanna had what we would call super PAC money, unlimited contributions from corporations that elected Roosevelt. Afterwards, those corporations came to him for their reward, which they expected would be less government regulation. Roosevelt responded by saying to Congress, all contributions by corporations to any political committee or for any political purpose should be forbidden by law. Later, he said, Every special interest is entitled to justice, but none is entitled to a vote in Congress to a voice on the bench. Congress reacted to Roosevelt's call by passing the Tillman Act in 1907, forbidding corporate political contributions in federal elections. Under President Richard Nixon, these prohibitions were violated because of a lack of disclosure. Then, in the Watergate scandal, these hidden violations became public. We learned that the Department of Justice had dropped an antitrust case against ITT in return for $400,000 given to finance the Republican convention where Nixon wanted it. The result was that after Watergate, Congress passed new reform laws and tried to require the disclosure of all money given for political purposes. These laws were later revised and strengthened in the McCain-Feingold Law in 2002. The goal of each of these laws was to prevent actual corruption. Just as important, though, has been the goal of avoiding the appearance of corruption. There is a significant difference between my speaking myself or giving my money to someone else for their speech. My own speech, in my own words, has higher First Amendment protection than a contribution. That brings us to the world of super PACs. They were created, as we've heard, by the Supreme Court Citizen United decision and the D.C. Circuit's Speech Now case. The majority in Citizens United said that in their view of the First Amendment, corporations had the same right as individuals to make unlimited independent expenditures in federal elections because such spending does not give rise to corruption or the appearance of corruption. The court based this new, somewhat novel view that independent spending can never corrupt on two important predicates. 
the spending must be totally independent of candidates and political parties, and it must be fully disclosed. So are their spending totally independent of candidates? Do we have full disclosure? Jonathan Soros will tell us in a few minutes. Thank you, Trevor Potter. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Four panelists are arguing for and against this motion. Two cheers for super PACs. Are super PACs good for democracy? Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is... Two cheers for super PACs. Welcome back to the program. You have heard two opening statements and now on to the third to debate for the motion. Two cheers for super PACs. Uh, A senior editor at Reason Magazine and Reason.com, an award-winning journalist and author of the critically acclaimed books Saying Yes and For Your Own Good, Jacob Sullum. Thanks. I feel a little bit underqualified for this debate because I think I'm the only panelist who has not created a super PAC. (laughs) So I'm talking instead from the perspective of somebody who's been writing about civil liberties issues for about 25 years now, and I see this as fundamentally an issue of freedom of speech. Consider the legal situation before the Citizens United case. Wealthy individuals were free to speak without limit. Uh, Media corporations, such as the ones that own uh, Fox News and The New York Times, were also free to speak without limit. By contrast, unions, businesses, and nonprofit advocacy groups such as the NRA or the ACLU could not talk about their issues on the air close to an election if they happened to mention the name of a candidate for federal office. Furthermore, as David mentioned, uh, people of lesser means could not get together and pool their resources to use for election-related messages unless they registered with the FCC, FEC and were subject to strict contribution limits. Now, people often overlook what was actually at issue in the Citizens United case, This was a documentary that was produced by a conservative group, Citizens United. It was called Hillary the Movie. Um, They wanted to air it during the 2008 election season, and they were prohibited from doing so. Why? First of all, it mentioned a candidate for federal office. And two, it made her look bad. Now, whatever you think about Hillary Clinton, how can that possibly be consistent with a constitutional provision that says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech? The Supreme Court concluded that it could not. Now, you frequently hear a couple of arguments in response to this decision uh, from people who didn't like it. Uh, First of all, they say money is not speech. Well, that's literally true, but you do need money in order to get your message across to a mass audience. Now, suppose Congress passed a law saying newspapers uh, can exist, but they can't spend any money. Or newspapers can exist, but they can only spend up to this amount of money. Clearly, that would be uh, abridging the freedom of the press. So once you understand that this is really controlling the money, in effect, is controlling speech, um, I think you also have to recognize that, that loosening these regulations on speech does not mean empowering people to buy elections. Why? Because the messages that you pay for still have to persuade voters. You're still talking about convincing people. Um, there are a number of striking illustrations from recent elections that show you that money can't buy you love. 2010, Linda McMahon is trying again this year. She spent $46 million of her own money on a Senate campaign in Connecticut. It was nearly $100 for every vote she received. She lost by 12 points. So clearly, money is not the whole story. It is nevertheless true that, on, on, in general, the people who win tend to spend more. But it's also true that stronger candidates tend to attract more money. There are various uh, characteristics that you can imagine that would make people both better able to raise money and better able to get votes. Charisma, 
popular policy positions. But one of the most important is incumbency. Um, incumbency gives people tremendous advantages in terms of visibility, the power to dispense pork, name recognition, and the re-election rates for members of Congress are, are insanely high. I mean, historically, in the past few cycles, 90% or more, even in the last, in the 2010, when Democrats lost a bunch of seats, it was still about 85%. Incumbents have a huge advantage, and they use campaign finance regulations to reinforce that advantage. One, one great example is the so-called Millionaire's Amendment, which was part of the McCain-Feingold Act. It said that if you face an opponent who is uh, spending his own money, he's rich, he's, he's financing his own campaign, then we're going to lift the limits on the contributions you can get. So this was clearly designed to help out incumbents who are facing self-finance tr- challengers. So by lifting the restrictions on the money that people could collect and spend on political messages, these two decisions, Citizens United and Speech Now, signal that freedom of speech is not a privilege that's reserved to billionaires or to media corporations or to politicians. It's a right that belongs to all of us, no matter how we choose to organize ourselves. And I think we're seeing benefits from that in terms of diversity of voices and greater competition in elections that we can talk about later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob Sullum. Our final debater, and he is speaking against the motion, two cheers for super PACs, money in politics is still overregulated, is Jonathan Soros. Jonathan is chief executive officer of JS Capital Management and a senior fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and co-founder of the super PAC Friends of Democracy. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Soros. Thank you. I can see that we're going to have a lot to talk about tonight. I'm going to take us on a closer look at the proposition itself. Mr. Keating laid out a very rosy picture of what super PACs are, but that don't really resemble what they are in fact. After 40 years of Supreme Court intervention, what we have is more loophole than law. Let's start with the issue of independence. As my partner mentioned, the Supreme Court has repeatedly said speech that is independent of campaigns can't be corrupting and therefore can't be restricted. Let's set aside for a moment how ridiculous that statement is, that if somebody showed up and said, I'm going to spend a billion dollars that that's not going to have some influence on candidates or elected officials. We'll leave that aside for a moment and just look at what independent really means today. Because the rules around what independent is for super PACs are basically non-existent. There are, in effect, only two rules that apply. One, candidates may not share inside information with a super PAC, and the super PAC may not give a contribution directly to a campaign. Obviously, they can give lots of things of value indirectly, like spending lots of money on television. There are more rules about what Goldman Sachs partners can say to each other than there are about what super PACs can say to candidates. Candidates can raise money for super PACs. They can show up at their fundraisers, and they can raise money at least up up to the $5,000 federal limit. But then what happens after they leave? Who knows? We all know, at least in the presidential election, the super PACs are being run by long-term aides of the candidates in both instances. And just in the last couple of weeks, as we watched the conventions, we heard about Karl Rove, who, of course, was senior advisor to President Bush, giving briefings about his super PAC around Tampa. In Charlotte, Rahm Emanuel, who had been uh, White House chief of staff and was the honorary chairman of the Obama campaign, left that position and the next day was giving interviews on the floor of the convention about how he was now tapped to be the lead fundraiser for the Obama-aligned super PAC. So clearly, independence under the current rules is a joke. Lastly, let's talk about transparency. It's true. Super PACs do have to disclose their donors. Transparency is something the Supreme Court speaks glowingly of in Citizens United and in other cases. But there's a loophole that you can drive a billion dollars through. 
Right? You don't have to give your political money to a super PAC. You can give your political money to a so-called social welfare organization, or corporations can give them to industry groups. And those can do almost exactly the same thing that super PACs can do, and they don't have to disclose their donors. So when people say, how much money is being spent in this election, the answer is we actually don't really know. We know that it will be more than ever before, but we don't know exactly how much, and we don't know exactly where it's coming from. A friend of mine likes to say that transparency alone is like the webcam that's at the, that was at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico showing us the Deepwater Horizon well. Shows you everything that's spewing into the Gulf, but it doesn't do anything to fix it. So if the premise of this debate had been money in politics is badly regulated, I would have happily switched sides and sat over there and argued that case. But the answer to the current lawlessness is better rules, not less of them. Thank you, Jonathan Soros. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and you in the audience. Our motion is this, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still over-regulated. We have two teams of two arguing it out. I want to put a question to the side that is arguing for super PACs. Your, your opponents have, uh, have really hammered at the theme that money is corrosive in politics, essentially that votes, votes can be bought and I didn't hear in your statements from either of you that you are especially agitated about that phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, actually, it often goes unnoted that uh, in most states it was perfectly legal for corporations and unions to st- spend money on, on political campaigns, pr- even prior to Citizens United, and there's no evidence that the states that allowed uh, unlimited spending by unions and corporations were more corrupt than the states that didn't. You would expect there to be some evidence, if, that's, if, if it's the case, that, that money is corrupting. But in fact, if you look at the research that's been done, uh, there's very little evidence uh, that legislators are actually driven by uh, the campaign do- donations they're receiving as opposed to uh, their party's interests, their constituents' interests, uh, things that they might think might appeal to the vote, to voters who elect them. And by the way, I find a lot of that at least as troubling as, as selling your vote for, uh, for money. I mean, I think that is something to be concerned about, selling your vote for money. Um, so, you know, for a politician to do something like take other people's money from around the country and spend it on, spend it on some pork barrel project in his district, then go and brag to voters about this and say, re-elect me, look how great I am. He's basically stealing other people's money from around the country and using that money to buy the votes of the right. voters. And to me, that's uh, at least equally troubling. So the side arguing against Perfectly the your, your opponents are saying that there is no evidence that, in fact, politicians will be influenced in office by contributions from donors as they were running for office. Jonathan Soros or Trevor Potter, do you want to take that on? Well, what they said was there's no evidence of corruption. That would be a great surprise to all those people sitting in jail across the country because they were the subject of FBI stings where they took money for official action. Uh, they're members of Congress who have freezers full of cash, okay, which they took for official action. Those are Ex-members. Not, those are direct bribes. Those are not campaign contributions. Yeah, he's got We're you. We're talking that's, about two different things. <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, you know, a couple, couple weeks deliver. ago, the uh, governor of Alabama uh, was returned to jail uh, for having taken a campaign contribution and then given someone an official appointment for it. I- I'm not saying everyone does this. I'm saying two things. First, it definitely has happened. There's a long uh, series of affidavits in the McCain-Feingold litigation and testimony from members of Congress and, not surprisingly, 
former members who feel freer to speak about it, saying, I see votes affected all the time by where the money came from, which industry was being affected. Plus, the amount of time that these members spend, which is now estimated at up to 70% of their working days, raising money. Those are the problems we're we face. We're talking about a couple of different things David here. Keating. What we're talking about here is the ability of Americans to get together in groups together to speak to each other and to speak to other Americans. These groups should be able to independently raise as much and speak as much to the American people. I'd also like to point out that before the Speech Now decision and the Citizens United decision, there were many states, in fact, a majority of states in the country, that allow unlimited contributions not only to independent expenditure committees, but to the candidates themselves. And Pew, along with Governing Magazine, Pew Charitable Trusts and Governing Magazine, rated the states for quality of governance, efficiency of providing services. Six of the best-managed states in the country were states where there were unlimited contributions allowed to these type super PACs, and most of these states also allowed in, uh, unlimited contributions to the candidates. All right, so two, two attacks have been made on your, on your argument that money is corrupting. Number one, they say there's no evidence that politicians are uh, operating as uh, agents of the people who funded them, and secondly, that there is superior or equally good government in states that have unlimited contribution? You know, in the first instance, I, I think Mr. Keating is, is fighting yesterday's battle as it, re- as it relates to whether groups are allowed to gather together and form super PACs. They are. The question is, should there be rules around that, and what should those rules be? principal argument of ours is that those rules are virtually non-existent now, and that's a real problem. You're suggesting that there's no evidence of independent expenditures corrupting. I would say we're at the early stages. This is kind of like the year after they invented television. We're looking at television ads, right? And so not clear that, that, that that's true, but we're actually not even arguing that that shouldn't happen. We are arguing that if the evidence presents itself that that is, in fact, corrupting, that you might want to go back and consider regulating that activity as well. Jacob Solom. I, I think there's, there's a problem here with the definition of corruption. I mean, uh, if you take a very broad definition of it, it's basically any inappropriate consideration, right, that, that causes you to vote a certain way. Um, but if what you're saying is that politicians tend to be grateful for people who support them, or two people who support them, that's true, but that would apply to celebrity endorsements, um, it would apply to, you know, voting a certain way because you like the way the lobbyist from that corporation dresses. You think she's pretty. Um, you can vote for terrible policies for all kinds of, of reasons. I think we should be focused more on the policies. I mean, people vote for terrible policies because they have crazy ideologies that drive them to do it. Um, you know, so I, I don't know why we're focused on this one particular area where there's potential for uh, improper considerations when there are all kinds of other considerations people might deem improper? And shouldn't we be focusing more on the results, the performance that people actually deliver once they're elected? Is it so, good performance? Is it bad? I, and it, part of that whole process is being able to speak on both sides of that. So, so, so just in responding to this question of corrupt, I think that there are important features that distinguish the different types of influence from the influence of money. In the first instance, with, with money and interest, you're talking about a class of individuals who have a disproportionate and clear, uh, clear influence over the political process. You made a comment in your opening statement that 
the increase of money, the increase of spending, uh, has generated more diversity of thought. Well, I don't think that we can rely for political diversity on disagreements between rich people. And so we'll talk about results. Don't knock for, disagreeing let's, rich let's talk, let's talk for <laughs> Let's talk for about results for a moment, right? Because when we talk about corruption, we talk about the appearance of corruption. What we're talking about is the integrity of the, of the system of representative government. And the evidence shows that less than 10% of Americans in a Gallup poll believe that their elected representatives are actually working in their interests. That's a dangerous place for a democracy. Okay, let's be. keep going on uh, this. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is, there, the problem with this standard, this crazy standard, and I grant you, it was endorsed by the Supreme Court, uh, the appearance of corruption, that, that we need to prevent the appearance of corruption. Um, I don't think it should hinge on the appearance of corruption. Maybe it should appear, uh, hinge on the reality of corruption, although I don't buy this argument at all that uh, the fear of act, even actual corruption, quid pro quo corruption, justifies restrictions on speech. I just want to take one more question, one more point, back to the side that is arguing against super PACs from your opponents. Uh, it was very much a thrust of their argument that there's a First, first Amendment here uh, issue in this. And you haven't uh, addressed at all whether, in fact, there is a valid core at all to their argument that there is a free speech issue here. And, and, you know, you may, you may feel that there are other interests that outweigh it, or you may feel there is no free speech interest, but I want to hear your view on it. Is there anything to it? Uh, I mean, I actually think that, I I actually think that Trevor acknowledged that in the first line of his, uh, of his remarks, that there is a, there is a free speech uh, interest here. And so to focus on Congress shall pass no law, that's just not true. We have lots of laws that curtail our speech in, in favor of some other public interest. And here there's a clear public interest in protecting the integrity of our electoral process from the possibility of corruption. Right. But it is, a, it is a curtailment of speech. Regulation of money and politics would be... Can be. Let's hear your partner's point on that, Trevor well, Potter. I mean, the answer is, of course, when you're talking about the First Amendment and political speech, you're going to have a, a free speech issue when you are regulating money in politics. But that doesn't, that just starts the question. It doesn't answer the question. All right. So Jacob Sullivan, they're saying the free speech, it's another example where free speech is not an absolute right. Um, uh, there are bases for other kinds of restrictions, like those that prevent fraud. I mean, that is a kind of speech restriction, but it has to do with preventing a, a right violation. And other, you know, other exceptions like obscenity that I don't necessarily agree with, but uh, I just never, never have bought this particular argument. But I want to say one thing in favor of disagreeing rich people. Is that how you put it, Jonathan? Yes. I mean, don't knock them. There is something to be said for disagreeing rich people. I mean, you've got billionaires on, you know, who are favor Democrats, and you have billionaires who favor Republicans. You've got a, a bunch of rich guys who got together and put together a group called the Campaign for Primary Accountability which I love because what they do is they go around the country, they look for entrenched incumbents of both parties, and they target them for defeat. Uh, There was a congressional race in Texas where Sylvester Reyes, who was a longtime congressman, terrible on the war on drugs. He was challenged by a guy named uh, Beto O'Rourke. I think that's his name. He's a former city councilman. Um, And he got help from the campaign uh, for primary accountability. And I, I don't know how much it helped him, but it presumably helped him somewhat, and he won. So you now have a guy who has written in favor of legalizing marijuana, written a book about it, in fact, uh, says we, you know, we, need, we need serious drug policy reform, replacing a hard-line drug warrior, both Democrats, right? And, of course, in the, in the Republican uh, presidential primaries, you had Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich. These are not the greatest examples, but they did hang in there a lot longer than they would have, thanks to rich guys who gave money to Super PAC supporting them. They could stay in that race. That race was more competitive than it otherwise would have been thanks to the Super PAC money. 
I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. I want to remind you we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters arguing it out over this motion. Two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. Let's hear from our audience. Uh, Jamie Weinstein, uh, senior editor of The Daily Caller. Uh, I- Jacob kind of stole my, my thunder at the end with my question, but I would like to get uh, your side to answer it. Uh, he pointed to the, the Republican primary this year, uh, and it actually seems to be more competitive because of the super PACs. Gingrich and Santorum were able to uh, stay in the race longer. Uh, isn't that a positive, more competitive elections? Well, what you had was huge contributions to uh, what Romney referred to as my super PAC, what Gingrich uh, clearly saw as his super PAC, as a way of getting around the normal contribution limits. I don't know that that was a particular benefit to anybody, that all the sides were armored up uh, significantly larger than they normally would be in a primary. You're right, the primary went on longer because instead of having to worry about, for Gingrich, whether there were donors who would support him uh, and how he could keep going when he kept losing primaries, all he had to worry about was whether he made one man happy or not. And under these coordination regulations, he could go meet with that man and talk to him. Yeah. So I just want to echo that. I mean, I think, I think that the, the issue is what would have happened if Newt Gingrich had won the primary? What, would we, what would, we, would we have been asking about what he owed to Sheldon Adelson for the support that he got during the primary? And also, how could we have done this? <laughs> There's a gentleman in a white, fully white shirt. Hi. Uh, this question is for the, in the affirmative of the motion. Um, you still maintain that money in politics is still overregulated. So I'm just wondering where you find it to be still overregulated and what the right amount of regulation should be. David uh, Keating. Well, I, uh, Jacob Sullivan. Yeah, I, I, just briefly. Uh, I think that they should get rid of the limits on contributions. I think a lot of this, this the, the false independence that you're worried about, this apparent dishonesty, the evasions and so forth come out of that. And what happens historically with campaign finance regulations, they impose one rule, people find a way around it. They impose a new rule, people find a way around that, and so on and so on and so on. And speech gets more and more restricted. The regulations get more and more complex and intimidating for the average person who might want to get politically involved. Um, I am sort of on the fence about disclosure rules. I think it's, it's legitimate to require candidates as a condition for running for office to disclose donors, but I don't think it's necessarily legitimate to require disclosure for uh, independent spenders. There's an argument to be made uh, that that chills speech. In fact, it's designed to chill speech. David Keating, would you, would you add any other well, to that list? I, I do think it makes sense to allow candidates to decide when they file as a candidate what the contribution limit will be, if any. So if they want to accept unlimited contributions, the candidates can do that. If the candidates will agree with each other to accept a limit, whether it's today's limit of $2,500 or some other limit of, say, $10,000, Let them do that and let the voters decide, do I trust this person taking these kinds of money from these kind of people? So I think that makes sense. Yeah, you can pick it up. I was just wondering for the proponents of free speech, without regulation, how do you differentiate between me supporting a candidate with my voice or me going to the store and buying Scott's miracle Grow and having my support of Green Lawns representing a political concern? Jonathan Soros. 
So I, I'm glad. Thank you very much for raising that. I'm glad that this came up because we haven't talked at all about the corporate question, which was actually what Citizens United was originally about. So that's an interesting uh, theoretical argument. The problem is Scott's miracle Grow decided voluntarily to use their to fund a super PAC, which is one of the few instances of a public company doing that. So if they decide to give their money in a way that's not disclosed, then as a consumer you have no idea about it, and as a and as a shareholder you have no idea about it. As the second the second thing is that. As a shareholder, you may very well have no ability to do anything about it anyway. So somebody who owns those shares through a pension fund, right? 47 states in this union, if you're a public employee, you're required to put your money into a pension fund. That money can go anywhere. It can go into any company, and you have no control over it. Do you mind standing up, too? Please, thanks. No. Okay, my name is Deborah Drickerson. And um, just going back to David's point that people have a right to sort of organize themselves or people have a right to change their government. It seems that we've just, we're getting into this long conversation about how to regulate money, but on the other hand, you're kind of saying that money doesn't really influence politics. Why, what could we look at as a different system, such as campaign finance reform or public funding of, of campaigns, and how do you think about that? David Keating. Well, the question is... Uh whether we should have tax-funded campaigns. It's very hard to design such a system. I think there are a lot of problems with it. I mean, we talk about disconnecting candidates from the people. If they don't have to raise money for their campaigns, we're disconnecting them additionally. But there's also real questions of how do you design such a system so that it's attractive so that the candidates will even want to do it. Uh, we have tax-funded campaigns for the presidential candidates, and in this election, both candidates have decided to forego that financing. In other states where they've designed these tax-funded campaign systems, they've designed them in such a way as to penalize uh, independent groups that speak out. Now, the Supreme Court has struck down those provisions, but it makes it even more difficult to design such a system. Uh, second, I don't think it's politically possible to pass either, when you put together the, the words basically tax funding and politicians together, it's not popular. People don't like paying taxes. They don't like their money going to politicians. They don't like politicians generally. So I think if we're looking for solutions to try to make our government more accountable, that's not something that's probably going to work politically. Sir, on the aisle. Hi, um, my name is Gil Hyde. I do high school debate um, here in the city. Um, and I have a question that's more theoretical than anything else. Um, you talk about the appearance of corruptions both teams have, and my question is um, the appearance of corruption versus actual corruption, whether it would make a difference if we didn't see the corruption um, towards the debate. That's a great point, because the response to the appearance of corruption is you just hide it, and then people don't worry about it, and it's not a problem. Uh, but yes, I think that is a problem, because it hinges on something that may not be real, um, and this whole notion that, that would underlies this, that you want people to have faith in your government, ought to be controversial. There's such a thing as having too much faith in your government. Some people look at these declining ratings for Congress um, and the federal government, and they say, this is terrible. People are losing faith in the government. Other people look at that, and they say, thank God, voters are finally wising up. Jake, I'm sorry. I so so that may mean that uh, we would have been better off if we'd never known that the Nixon administration sold milk price supports uh, for According $2 million to the, to the uh, argument, yeah. milk people and sold uh, an antitrust case to ITT. And the, what the court said is you have to worry about both. You have to worry about actual corruption, uh, and you have to worry about the appearance, because if citizens think that's what's going on, and they look at all this money, and they look at who's getting it and the way these super PACs are working, 
linked closely to candidates and think, well, I don't have any role in this, that appearance is a problem for us, too. Right down the front here. Um, yeah. I've heard you guys, my name's Kim Barker, and I've heard you talk a lot about super PACs this evening and some mention of social welfare nonprofits and trade associations. I guess I'd like to ask both sides what role you think those anonymous donation groups are going to play this election and to get a defense of anonymous money in politics and, and, and also why it might not be so good. Right. Okay. As I said before, I think there really is a value in, in not having to disclose the people who are supporting these groups. I mean, imagine somebody who supports, say, Normal and doesn't want his employer to know that or supports NARAL or fill in your favorite group, whatever, whatever it is. You can imagine reasons why people don't want their support to be widely known. And in fact, this has been recognized to some extent by the Supreme Court in a case involving the NAACP, where I think it was at Alabama, uh, wanted, wanted to force them to disclose all of their supporters. The Supreme Court said, basically, if you have to reveal who all your supporters are for, for a group that's engaged in advocacy that's controversial, that obviously has a chilling effect. It, ch- it chills freedom of association and freedom of speech, too. So I think there is an argument, a strong argument to be made uh, against forcing those groups to disclose uh, who their supporters are. Jonathan Soros. So the NAACP's, uh, NAACP case is a popular uh, argument in response, and there are a lot of reasons why uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. First of all, elections are different. There actually, there's lots of anonymous political, political speech in, uh, in our society. We don't go around looking for the, for the sources of those speech. But when you're talking about advocating for the election of, an, of someone who's going to represent their population and you want to have that, that clear connection between the electorate and, uh, and the elected official to know that they're actually representing their constituency, elections are different. Uh, Jonathan, I have to step in because we hit our time limit. And I want to say that's the conclusion of round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And here's where we are. We're about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. On to round three, closing statements. Here to speak against the motion, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. Trevor Potter, he is president and general counsel of the Campaign Legal Center. I'd like you to imagine a state where industrial hog operators began to worry about proposed new environmental regulations that would prevent them from dumping untreated waste into local rivers. Imagine they formed a group called, say, Farmers for Fairness to persuade legislators to block such regulation. Imagine they created some campaign ads which attacked legislators by name, never mentioning hog farming at all, but claiming legislators were not in touch with our values. Now imagine that Farmers for Fairness did not go out and run these ads, but instead scheduled meetings with legislators and screened the advertisements for them in private. Imagine Farmers for Fairness told the legislators privately that they would hate to run these ads, but would do so if the legislators didn't vote the way they wanted. You don't have to imagine that. It happened in North Carolina, documented by a federal judge in a case called Life versus Leak. But today, a super PAC nonprofit could do this in Congress with huge sums of unlimited undisclosed money at their disposal, and we might never know it happened. Two cheers for super PACs? I don't think so. 
That is not the system we need. Thank you, Trevor Potter. Our motion is two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated, and here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Jacob Sullum, a senior editor at Reason Magazine. So during the first round of arguments in Citizens United, uh, Deputy Solicitor General Malcolm Stewart was asked, well, if you can ban this movie, Hillary the Movie, um, what about if you had very similar material but it was presented in a different medium, like DVDs or on the Internet or even in books? And he said that would be constitutionally permissible too. Um, This was pretty shocking because it raised the possibility that the government could ban books in the name of fighting corruption. And it was widely seen as a turning point in the case. They had a second round of oral arguments, which was very unusual, prompted largely by this revelation. And during that round, the Solicitor General, Elena Kagan, said the government had changed its answer. Uh, She said there would be a strong constitutional case against punishing an organization for publishing a book, but that pamphlets were different because they were classic electioneering. Well, that raised new questions. You know, when does a pamphlet become a book? Is it a matter of the number of pages, the binding, or what? Now, uh, the media exemption that, that I alluded to before, upon close examination, looks equally arbitrary. Citizens United, after all, was producing movies. So why was that Citizens United not a media corporation? This media exemption puts the government in the position of deciding who deserves to have unfettered freedom of speech and who does not, which is precisely the sort of distinction that the First Amendment is supposed to prohibit. So while many of my fellow journalists have supported these kinds of regulations, basically lobbying to keep their own special speech privileges, it's always seemed foolish to me uh, for people who make a living by talking about politics to appoint the government as a sort of national debate moderator, because you never know when the moderator will decide that it's time for you to shut up. Your time is up, Jacob Sullum. <laughs> Thank you. Our motion, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated, and here to... Summarize his position against the motion, Jonathan Soros, senior fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and co-founder of Friends of Democracy. So um, I'm going to return to this question of uh, Scott's miracle grow because what's not part of the story yet is that Scott's was fined $12.5 million for violations of federal pesticide laws for, among other things, putting toxic insecticide in their bird seed. Now, they got caught doing that. And actually, they, as far as I can tell, acted admirably. They admitted it, pled guilty. They uh, entered into an agreement. And that was dealt with because we have laws that protect clean air and clean water, and we have an enforcement agency that deals with that. In June, they gave $200,000 to the pro-Romney Super PAC Restore Our Future. There are no laws in place after Citizens United, no clear legal regime that would require them to disclose that information so that their consumers would know about it, so that their shareholders would know about it, so that anybody else would know about it. And we have no effective regulatory agency that will provide us with clean elections. We, d- we deserve disclosure of contributions. We deserve an effective disclosure regime. We deserve something that protects our, the integrity of our political process. The proposition that we're arguing is whether money in politics is still overregulated. And the answer to that is clearly no. Thank you, Jonathan Soros. The motion, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, David Keating, president of the Center for Competitive Politics. Well, since we passed the major campaign finance restrictions in the early 1970s, we've seen competition decline. We used to see elections that were far more competitive than they are today. The re-election rate has gone up, not down. 
But fundamentally, I think what we have to keep in mind here is who is going to write these restrictions? Who is going to write the campaign finance laws and regulations? Well, the answer is it's going to be the incumbent members of Congress. There is no other way to write them. And if there was ever a conflict of interest about how this was going to be written, that's a conflict. They get to write the regulations, so they probably will write them so that they will be able to have a better chance at keeping their jobs. Basically, this is a debate about who decides what you can say. Should it be us, the people, getting together and deciding, or should it be the politicians? And should it be the prosecutors who are looking to make a name for themselves? You have to keep in mind many of these laws that are written not only have civil penalties, but criminal penalties. And if you think that's far-fetched, the very first political prosecution taken under these laws was a group that took out a full-page ad urging Nixon's impeachment for the invasion of Cambodia. That was the first prosecution under the campaign finance laws. I would say free speech is messy, but the cure of additional regulations written by politicians who want to stay in office is worse than any disease of free speech. Thank Thank you, you, David Keating. And that concludes our closing statements. This was for us uh, relaunching this season in the midst of a political campaign. It was just about a perfect target for us. And um, I think all of us at our Intelligence Squared are really, really impressed by the level of debate that these panelists brought to this. All right, we have the results in. Remember, our motion is this, two cheers for super PACs. Money in politics is still overregulated. You heard the heated and intelligent arguments. We've asked you to vote twice, both before the debate and again at the end of the debate. And the team whose numbers have moved the most will be declared our winner. And it goes like this. Before the debate, 19% were for the motion, 63% were against, 18% undecided. After the debate, 22% are for the motion. That's up 3%. 69% are against. That is up 6%. That means that the side arguing against the motion in a squeaker has carried this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan. We'll see you next time from Intelligence Squared U.S. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org forward slash Intelligence Squared. Intelligence Squared U.S. is supported by the Rosencrantz Foundation and distributed by NPR.